Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Global Marketing Show. I am grinning ear to ear because today's guest just said, once you've worked with global marketers, you don't want to go back. And that is certainly the case. First, I want to remind you that the Global Marketing Show podcast is brought to you by Rapport International, who connects you to anyone, anywhere in the world across 200 different languages. They have a specialty in global marketing because once you do global marketing, you never go back. So a tidbit, a Rapport International tidbit. Let's talk about summer since we're headed into summer now in the Northern Hemisphere. Did you know that the summer temperatures in Paris can reach as high as 40 degrees Celsius or 100 degrees Fahrenheit? And that makes the Eiffel Tower grow and tilt. The heat and sun expand the metal, causing the tower to grow up to six inches taller and tilt away from the sun up to seven inches. I had no idea about that. Maybe a, maybe an engineer would have known, but I didn't. So that's if you want the tallest view from the Eiffel Tower, go during the summer. All right. So another question for you. What do you get when you have a marketing specialist and an HR specialist lumped into one position, you get a very accomplished woman named Jasmine Martirosian. She's the chief marketing and the chief HR officer at mercury.com, which we're going to learn more about. It's fascinating. And she has a PhD in law, policy, and society program and a master's in international relations from Northeastern University. And she's worked for a number of well-known companies in senior positions. So welcome, Jasmine. Thank you, Wendy. It's a pleasure being on your show. A minor correction, our website is shipmercury.com. Okay. I had the mercury.com. I didn't realize it had the ship in front of it, but your yeah, company name is Mercury, Mercury, right? Mercury Business Services, the full name, but we're also Mercury Inc. So we have both names. We specialize in time and temperature shipping uh, and focus on the life sciences, biotech, uh, healthcare industries. Those are the, there's a life behind every shipment we make. So we might be shipping possibly body parts or a drug that's going for FDA approval or a drug that has to be tested, say, in Switzerland after four or five, 10 years of research. And it could be a very uh, unique, expensive specimen that may hold the you know clue to curing thousands of lives and ridding them of disease. So everything we do is very mission critical for the organizations that work with us. So in our website is shipmercury.com. Okay, so shipmercury.com. So that's really interesting. So you said body parts. So of course I have to go back to that. It's probably just not an arm or a leg. Talk to me more about body parts and why you'd handle something like that. For instance, knee replacements. Uh, there are very special knee replacements that have to be in extremely clean environments and can be open only at some point so they're not exposed to air and particles 
and they need to arrive at a hospital right before surgery. And there is even a famous case where our CEO, Josh Meadow, had to race to an airport late at 9 p.m. because we knew a flight that a new replacement was on was canceled and that needed to get to the hospital the next morning. And as he personally went and took it off of the airline and put it on another airline that would actually make the flight. And to, because imagine all the disruptions in people's lives, if that surgery would not go ahead for that person, their family, the surgeons, the whole medical teams, it, there are a lot of lives that are touched by any of the shipments that we have. It could be some critical tests where somebody finds out if they have a disease or not. So it's very time and temperature sensitive and ensuring that those items stay within the right temperature environment and make it there to the destination intact is extremely important. So we specialize it and we simplify the complexity of shipping for all those people. So tell me more about how you got started. It seems like on a lot of this stuff, you'd have to go international from the start if you're talking life sciences. Did you start local or did you start global? So our organization is turning 40 next year, and it started, I would say, pretty U.S.-centric because initially the idea was to ship legal documents and make sure that the law firms could have their documents delivered to the courthouse or for deposition in a very timely manner. So that's how it started. But we pivoted towards life sciences in the early 2000s as, you know, signatures became digital, like DocuSign and other things. So our uh, company was able to really reinvent itself. It's because we really stay very focused to make sure that we're responding to client needs in the most relevant way. So it's a great example of a business pivoting to where the real need is. And we started noticing more of the need for life sciences and there you have a lot of people who are, have PhDs who have nothing to do with shipping, but they're very concerned about the outcome of that shipping, right? So there could be research scientists, could be a whole number of people who are not even set up for proper shipping purposes. And that's where we come in and really simplify that complexity. That's fascinating me. They made a pivot from documents to life sciences products, things, rather than paper because of what they read in the marketplace. That's a really interesting pivot. They knew their core competencies. I mean, Sony Corporation was started manufacturing green bean soup and then heated blankets. But now we think of Sony as something entirely different, smaller electronics products, right? So Right. Yeah. So it really is the core competencies of knowing what that you're a manufacturer and you can do these things versus yours was logistics. Yeah. And the same things apply to any organization, when to pivot, how to pivot, and very few do it really well. You know, the New England ice manufacturers, for, for instance, none of them ever embraced refrigeration even though the new technology came on the market and they all went bust. So we pride ourselves on being a company who is, you know, through our values of client obsession, relentless improvement and world-class teamwork, we pride ourselves on really living those values. So that allows us to be better connected to what the client needs are. 
And so hence we can pivot more effectively. Okay, so the big competitors out there are FedEx, UPS, and DHL in the international arena. Do they, can they handle things like this? Shipments that are temperature sensitive, for instance, they need to have dry ice within packaging. It's cold chain, right, to ensure that they are protected and they keep a certain temperature. And dry ice sublimates at a certain percentage point over time. So for instance, if your shipment goes from Boston to Zurich and sits in customs for a day or two, you will need somebody to go replenish that. Otherwise, the temperature will suffer, dry ice will be gone, and you know the product's purpose will be lost because it might be damaged. And FedEx, for instance, will not replenish your dry ice, whereas our organization, through its very vast engaged network, make sure that dry ice will be replenished. And we can do that because it's a more boutique focused approach and we specialize in life sciences and that industry absolutely needs it. That's interesting. So yeah, you've got a real value add to really pamper the product through. What other kind of value added services do you do to make sure the shipments get through how they're supposed to? We'll ensure that people start out with the right packaging to begin with. We can also do custom pickups and custom delivery, which the larger companies will just not do. They they will they will give you a very broad window, a wide window, and say we'll come between this and that time. Whereas we can time it to thirty minutes if you need. And usually our clients have very sensitive schedules because something will be ready at an X point in time to be on that journey. It's it's not like paperwork, right? Or it's not something that's static. It's things that are time and temperature sensitive. We'll make sure that immigration, like customs work is done. Well, in essence, you're immigrating a product to another country, right? So, well, immigration is about people, but this is customs. So product clearance through customs, it's really important. And we'll have our agents who will represent and handle all that paperwork. We'll make sure that the shippers have already the right paperwork in place because products getting kind of detained at customs is a major problem. So, and that's a worldwide issue. So we'll guide them through those steps of complexity of doing international business from point A to point Z as needed. Okay, and then you'll replenish dry ice or do special delivery so you know exactly where everything is at every moment, not within the day we or can, hour. We can implant GPS trackers into shipments. We can have, to, and the GPS tracker will tell you exactly where within a gigantic facility your product is at any time or every step of the journey. We can put something called temp tails, which tells you what average temperature has been maintained throughout the process. Imagine you're sending something from a lab to another lab and you need to make sure that those items have retained the temperature. It Mm -hmm. gives you a sense of assurance that this need has been met. Yeah, I was at a trade show. Actually, it was the seafood trade show, the international one in Boston. And there was somebody there with those little temperature things that were very 
you know, they were like a buck a piece, but to save a whole load to know that it's safe, they were really, really uh, interesting. It was the first time I had heard of that. So that makes sense that you would do that. Okay, so let's get into global marketing. You're head of marketing for this company. You're targeting life sciences now, not just lawyers in the United States. How do you even think about that for something like this? Well, you have to embrace the complexity and try to simplify it as with anything. And frankly, throughout my career, I'm used to it. You have to understand your audience. I mean, any marketing effort starts with your audience. And if your audience is international, you have to also think across international lines, what's resonating with your audience and what their needs are. It's in essence the same. Any international rules will apply to us in the sense of both personalization, understanding their needs, speaking their language, appealing in a way that resonates for them rather than making it about us, but coming with solutions to their complex issues and situations. A lot of marketing, many marketers may not even notice this, even today, which is very strange to me, is all like chest thumping, me, me, me. We do this, we do that, but like, who cares? Why does it matter? What value do you bring and what problems do you resolve and solve? And what's the thought leadership? How are you really helping your client base? And even if somebody's not our client, we still care. If we're educating the marketplace to make better decisions, in Mercury's case, it would be educating people who are in complex shipping situations to find solutions to their logistical challenges. We're happy to do that because it it helps evolve society. Can you give an example of how you're marketing now where the messaging would be different across countries? I think you would look at the need, you look at the culture, you look at what they're experiencing, you look at their right. Can dominant you bring it players. down to a story for me? Yeah, you have to yeah. understand. You have, I mean, life is about stories, right? But not every story resonates with everyone. I mean, Hollywood is your ultimate storyteller. And <laughs> but let's let's think about it. Stories make yeah. a lot of money. There's an entire yeah. industry around stories that's movie making. Literature yeah. is all about stories. People love stories, but not every story is for everyone. Right. That's why there are different genres. So you need to think of every location, every country in ways that resonate with them. Somebody may have a very sophisticated network and we may need to find an entirely different angle there. Somebody may not have the basics and we will have a different angle there. So what I'm wondering about is, is your messaging here in the United States different than it is in one of the other countries? Do you target countries? countries for your services or do you mostly focus on U.S. going to other countries or do you have international clients that might be shipping to the U.S. or like France to China? Uh, those are great questions. We do have a lot of international clients that ship to the U.S. Our primary historical audience has been the U.S., but we're branching out and growing out more. And as we're expanding our locations, we'll actually end up doing a way more kind of local personalization. And I know that sounds like a double meaning, like because if it's local, it's personalized, but it has to be hyper-local in terms of personalization as well. Yes, yes, it absolutely does. So you've talked about 
with Mercury, you have mostly the US and you're developing a strategy to go to other countries. And I know you've had this experience before at Intertech and TUV. Can you talk to me in like one of those organizations, how you went about doing that? Because that'll give us information about how you're looking at it now. I can give you great examples from Intertech and actually PTC. Both companies were trying to be, and this is a challenge for most organizations, when you're global, usually the headquarters get somewhat preferential treatment and the other territories do not get the same treatment, but the same results, sell results are expected of everyone. So when it comes to international marketing, it's important to make sure that all your locations, all your geographies, have the same types of resources extended to them. But then again, you have to also customize to their needs. So I'll use both examples of Intratech and PTC where there were similar challenges in that Intratech wanted to, it, it had grown through acquisitions very rapidly and it had at the time seven main divisions, each had their own website, sometimes there was duplication and you wouldn't get a sense of commonality of the company. So we first resolved the uh, English language issue. Now it was a company that's headquartered in London, UK, but most of the marketing was done out of the United States. So once we consolidated the website and had a single English language website, which in the background was managed by different teams, but out on the outside, it was a very seamless experience for the client and it's a great website that's very successful to this day. We then had to launch country websites. Now, the resources and the specializations of the countries were very different. So what we did is we took the core of the English language content and we actually recreated the structure similarly for each of the country, but then we went into each country and worked with them to customize to their needs, to their strengths, to have some core offerings that were consistent across the board on all language sites, but then to also go really deep into the areas of their strength. And that made absolutely perfect sense and helped each geography grow to their strengths, right? It's about working from strengths. Whereas a lot of the time, companies have those messy websites where there is the English version and everything is just then auto-translated either into the language of the country or you'll go into, say, a French language site, but then some pages still appear in English. So that is not a very helpful setup for the users, A, for the user experience and for the local country. In effect, it actually makes it appear how deficient services could be in certain countries. Whereas the solution we found you know, it, it's it's a less orthodox solution, but it actually positions each country for strength. Same is true of what we did for PTC. Okay, so talk about, so you went through that same process for PTC. PTC was an interesting experience. They had taken four years to build the site in like 12 languages that was not delivering the results and the site had to be frozen for two weeks at a time to the these massive translations, which were not really panning out. Again, we stepped back from it, came out with a different approach, created a major English language site, and then created smaller country sites to make sure that each country was invested in what they were doing and that it would best reflect the strengths within that country with the services that they were providing. 
That is so interesting to me because you have two examples from two different companies about how they got to their messy website or what they were trying to accomplish, but you clean it up, get a strong website and then build the other, the other countries out. And we call that at Rapport International microsite. So you've got your main site, but then you can develop microsites to focus in on them. So that's a, that's a really good way to do that. Another way that I've seen is, is that you just do a landing page. So at least everything is comprehensive and you take somebody through the buyer's the landing, Yeah, but the landing page, again, kind of telegraphs the message that, oh, this is like a secondary or tertiary country for us or location. So if businesses really want to grow in those countries, they have to put up a front. And let's face it, a website today is a storefront that says we actually mm -hmm. mean to be in this country. We mean business. And we value this country as a primary area of concern for us, rather than this is a secondary tertiary offering. And this refers to a lot of American companies, too. I mean, we all think, oh, everybody speaks English, but it's not sufficient enough because even in a country like Sweden, where people are extremely well conversant in English, they still value being able to see the content that's relevant, say, to their engineers in Swedish. And that's what we did with Intertech, for instance. In Sweden, there was a fully-fledged Swedish language site that's not just like a, a landing page and it goes into all English. It's also about communicating respect, right, to the local country players and how the food that you put forward. It's very, very, very important to show that you mean to be in that business rather than, oh, this is just happens to be one of our, you know, outposts, then. Right. No, I think that that's, that's a very good insight on that. That's fascinating. You talked before about when you were launching a global website in Shanghai. Do you remember that conversation? Can you tell us about that? Oh, absolutely. That was a very interesting point. And I talked about how people can, Sometimes when there is lack of cooperation, if you have not explained the why to somebody, I think in this particular case, we arrived in Shanghai and I'm not gonna name names or the company, but the people were not exactly very excited about having a, a website, a new website done because they believed everything was under control. And in China, there are different rules, right? You have to have your content hosted on servers in China. And we've done all the research. So the local counterparts excuse was there was not big enough conference room to work. And thankfully, I was staying at the Kempinski Hotel and had actually spoken the night before with the hotel manager. And I said, well, I have connections, which was really funny because I've been on that trip. It was like my second day in Shanghai. And <laughs> though I'd been to Shanghai before a number of times. But so I'm like, I have connections in the hotel. And, and they're like, oh, you can't, you have to book in advance. I'm like, the manager of the hotel will help us. And he did. And he we took that excuse away. So now they had to collaborate. But it was about building the trust and also showing the dedication. When we dug deeper into it, it was really about trust. In the past, they had not felt supported. They thought this would be another flavor of the month idea, and then it would go away. But that site was ultimately launched and was a success. So do not give up and, you know, know how to counter local resistance in subtle ways. 
you had other examples of resistance and how you've countered them? Because you've worked all over the place. Oh, I had a situation where I can't even replicate. It was dealt with France. And we were all like booked on this trip to start launching the process of the French side to get everybody on board to get it done. And there was somebody from UK who wanted to be in France and nobody really wanted that person there. And that person was going to be, was this big conflict for no good reason. And I remember being told, Jasmine, whatever you do, find a solution. It was really hard because you can't exclude anybody. And my solution was that we would have that person still arrive, but then we would only do dinner with the person. And the French said, well, Jasmine, that should work because we can't say no to breaking bread together. So here was this very high tech complex situation and it came down to breaking bread together. That's a wonderful solution. And we were able to resolve the situation. And the person was like, very, how do I say this, really smart, accomplished person, but who could really be granular to the level that really grated on people's nerves. So the French organizer of the event said, but Jasmine, you are the one who's going to sit next to this person at dinner. That's like, <laughs> <laughs> and I did. and But in the end, it all worked out. <laughs> so both in the story of Shanghai and in the French story, you have a deep understanding of cultures and how they work. I mean, you knew to say that, oh, I have connections, even though you've been there. And that's something that's very important to in Chinese culture. And then the, the in, in the France situation, you knew that breaking bread was very important. So how do you develop that? Like, how did you develop it? And what recommendations do you have for people on developing it when they have to work across cultures and they might not have that insight? I'm deeply curious about the world and cultures. Cultures fascinate me. I think we all lose perspective sometimes when we're not exposed enough because there is always an alternative way of achieving something and different cultures will go about it in different ways. And I'd like to think that I learned a little bit from everyone. And I try to really bring that into daily life. And as a reminder, right, that there is possibly an alternative solution. I will usually say that I'm not beholden to the tyranny of war. In our society, we're actually, we grow up with the tyranny of war because usually it's this dichotomy, either or you do this or that. Women in particular, for instance, are told that you can either be a good executive or a good mother and family person and wife. It doesn't have to be that way. You can do both really well. So there is always a third option. So my curiosity about other cultures is also fed by the desire to always find that possible third option, third solution. And that makes a world of difference. Also, if you're curious about a culture, and when people sense that you're genuinely interested in them, you want to learn more about them, they will actually do wonders for you. So to me, all my international collaboration has been super successful, partly because I've come from a point of respect, admiration, and curiosity. And when people sense that, they will absolutely try to facilitate the outcomes for you, as opposed to a command and control thing, because I said so. I mean, any parent knows that doesn't quite work. 
but somehow people do it in the workplace and especially across country borders, that's not going to work. Right. That is, I, I like starred that all over your quote of not be, beholden to the tyranny of war and that there's always another option. It's operating in that great zone. I love, I love how you said that. Thank you so much. Thank we, you. we are running out of time. And I think, you know, that when I get towards the end, I always ask somebody what their favorite foreign word is. So I got to ask. <laughs> <laughs> from wait and i'm asking somebody who speaks armenian russian english spanish french italian and german so foreign is loosely defined here to any language <laughs> uh, uh there are so many favorite words i could say but i'll go with the german schadenfreude yeah <laughs> because it's an entire concept philosophy and paragraphs folded into a single word and it's let's see if I can say that briefly so it's being happy at somebody's misfortune but that misfortune is really well deserved and was a payback ah uh, okay I've never heard that qualifying part after that I just thought it was happy at someone's misfortune and it sounded negative no it's but not like negative that. so if it's shot of Freud, it was actually well-deserved punishment in essence okay so they they kind of they got what was due to them and they, they they must have done something and it's like very philosophical so it came back to haunt them. That's the whole concept. Otherwise, it would be very evil and mean to be happy at somebody's misfortune. But they brought it on onto themselves, and there was payback. And so it's very like complex and nuanced, and I think largely misunderstood, as even you're indicating. Right? Yes, yes. Well, and I read recently that they're they're trying to come up with a word, or they have one that's Freud and Freud. So happy for somebody's good fortune. <laughs> that would be a good word. Wouldn't right? it? Yeah. And, and, and frankly, you know, I, I personally believe that, you know, you know, they say, you know who your friends are when you're in hour of need. I would counter that you really know who your friends are in your hour of happiness. Yes, that's true. Who can you really go to and share the really, mm -hmm. really good news that you get? That is so true. Huh. So this has been absolutely delightful. So share some good news with us or share some final recommendations for people thinking about getting into or that are doing global marketing. You know what? Stay curious. If you're in global marketing, start with culture. I don't want to repeat myself, but I have to. Curious, curious, curious. Be curious about the people you're meeting. Ask questions. Don't hesitate to ask for help. Be humble. If you don't understand something, say so. Uh, remember one thing, though. Fundamentally, people across borders, cultures are more alike than different. So view them as humans and do not say phrases that are very impersonal, like, oh, the overseas team, you know. Mm -hmm. Call them by whatever the culture, the name, just personalize and be be very curious. I'm repeating the word curious on this, but curiosity in international marketing goes a long way. Now, recently, I was interviewing somebody 
for a different role in my people ops role. And the person had done some marketing in the UK. And, you know, I worked at a British company and have spent a lot of time, you know, looking at how you position in the UK versus in the US. And the person came out and said, well, there isn't any difference. They don't mind the American English version of it. They, they don't care at all. They're fine. So, but if you go and ask the person the question, oh, are you okay with American to your face? They're going to say yes. That doesn't mean that you found the correct answer. Right. And whereas we knew as much, our research showed that the Brits were very apprehensive about seeing American English spelling on pages, especially when the service was delivered in Britain. So we were very intentional, for instance, that on intertech.com, single English language website, to make sure that the services that were delivered primarily in the UK and were delivered in the UK, that they had British English spelling. Whereas services that were delivered in the US and were targeting the US audience, they had American English spelling. It is, you know, people laugh when I tell them that, oh yeah, Rapport International, we do translation from British English to American English or vice versa. And they're like, what? It's English. But there's so many different spellings and different word choices and type of humor, the way you come at it. So that's a really good point. It's little things. I mean, quite literally, I was in London, UK yesterday and flew back in. So the word, the word, excuse me, if you ask somebody, excuse me, in the US, you're asking them to yield so you can pass through, you won't get the same reaction in the UK. It's more like, pardon, pardon me. Those are little things that make a difference. So how can they not have an impact on a bigger scale? Yes, yes. Well, where can people reach you or find you if they want to learn more? Well, they can find me on LinkedIn under my name, Jasmine Martirosian. I'm very LinkedIn friendly and they can message me there. Our My email at mercury is jasminem at shipmercury.com. So I'm always happy to answer any questions anybody might have. Thank you. That's with your role. I'm sure you keep very busy though. So to share your email, I really appreciate that and your offer to help anybody. And we'll put a link to Jasmine's LinkedIn on the show notes. So if you want to go there, you can click on that and find her. Thank you so much. Thank you, Wendy. Appreciate the opportunity. Nice chatting with you. Okay. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, give it a five star and share it with somebody that might be interested in doing this. Remember that less than 1% of U.S. companies export and those that do, do better across all variables that the Department of Commerce measures. Share this episode so people can learn how to get this valuable information from people like Jasmine. Thanks so much and we'll talk to you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.